excuse me for a minute. I just realized something. We didn't plug in the tree. Whose job was that? Yep, okay. That's a good idea. Just start from start from the top. A lot of folks came out earlier this week and I appreciate the time that they gave and the effort to kind of decorate around a little bit for for the Christmas season. Actually in in church world, uh, this time of year is most often considered Advent. We are Baptist. You probably figured that out by the fact it says Baptist on the sign, and I've said Baptist a few times today. And typically Baptists don't do too much in the liturgical tradition and the liturgical church year, but, but over the last several years we've added a few touches of Advent. One is the Advent wreath up front where a, a candle is lit every um, week leading up to, to Christmas, and, and we've got not a Christmas tree, but a Chrismon tree. Not because we're like close to Jamaica Mon, but because those are w- what the ornaments are called, Chrismons. They're all symbols of Christ and the like. So it's, it's actually fascinating. One of our uh, ladies' Sunday school classes had a, a day several years ago and, and went through and made most of those ornaments. So that's kind of cool. And, and then we just got the different touches of Advent around. Advent is really a season of preparation, you might could consider it. It's uh, from the Latin word, which means the arrival or coming. And so over the next several weeks, most churches will have in their focus the things of God, the things of Jesus, and the idea of let's prepare, or let's have an expectation of the arrival of Christ. Now, we have a very unique perspective because our expectation looks back, which is really the best way when you think about it, to expect something. Because if you're looking back at something you expect, you already got it, right? Did I do that right? You know, we're looking back at the the birth of Jesus, we might say. But, But I think also in that, for us as believers, is we also await an advent of Christ. We await what's called the second coming of Christ. Now, that was a huge deal when I was growing up in my church. We had a pastor in particular who loved, loved, loved to preach on the second coming. He would use that, and it seemed like every week we'd get to the, toward the end of the message, and he'd start banging that drum about the second coming. He was a very evangelistic-minded pastor, uh, C. Russell Clemens, if you're wondering. I don't know why I remember the C, but that was his name. Uh, and he, he did a great job for our church growing up, but he loved to kind of bang that drum. He talked about the second coming. And one year we had a uh, New Year's Eve watch night service. Anybody ever been to a watch night service? You know what I'm talking about, where you stay up all night long and pray in the new year. Well, what we did was also showed a movie. And that movie scarred me. Maybe you've seen this movie. It's called A Thief in the Night. Anyone seen the movie A Thief in the Night? As a kid, as a youngling, I wasn't ready. I mean, I, I was like, I, I was upset. I was, I was scared. Jesus is coming like right now, and I don't think I'm ready, and it's going to be bad. What will I do? And it was, it was just this very intense movie, very suspenseful, at least for a kid. I'd probably watch it today and be like, ah, no big deal. But at the time, it really made an impression on me. And so when, when Pastor Clemens the next Sunday would get up and give his invitation, as he often did, he would, he would usually get there and he would preach on the, 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 the any second reality that Jesus could come back and you better be ready 
and and he could come back now he better he might come back before we finish this invitation song so we're going to sing one more verse every head bowed every eye closed and if you don't come now anyone else i mean that was kind of the way i was brought up which explains that's exactly how i preach now right no not really nonetheless but but i i remember that as a very strong theme growing up and as as sort of an urgency to the reality that that could come and and when we think about who we are as as believers and as we think about this season of advent i want us to if we can grab a little bit of that urgency because in that urgency in that that sense of the any moment now christ could return there's some things that might be worth dwelling on you know for the the first century, that first advent of Christ, it was a big deal, particularly for the people of Israel. As we look in our Bibles, we talk about the two divisions of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as we're going through them, to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we turn a page. And maybe you have an introductory page or two that explains a little bit. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's just one page is Malachi, the next page is Matthew. And we, we just have that perspective of looking back again that it's already done our expectation has been fulfilled in that regard but for those in israel there was about a 400 year period where as they thought about it god was well a little bit silent the prophetic voices that had come through time and again the messages from god that they came to expect and the way god would communicate with them so boldly and and even by these prophets so strikingly was a little bit silenced now that doesn't mean nothing happened in those 400 years but as far as what we think about as the 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 message of god for his people those 400 years are relatively quiet 400 years 400 four centuries i guess it is uh, if we go by typical lifespan that might be six lifespans six generations or so go by and this idea that we are God's people and he loves us uniquely and he provides for us sovereignly and and he rescues us from our enemies. And all of that seemed to grow quieter and quieter from captivity to captivity. And here they are when the birth of Jesus arrives under the Romans thumb. Things are not great in Israel. There is a, a sense of we want God to answer. We want God to to fix what's wrong. We feel like God has maybe forgotten us. We've been doing the thing that we were told to do. We keep going to the temple. We keep offering the sacrifices. We keep doing the duties that we've been prescribed, and yet it seems like nothing changes. I'm sure if we think about our lives, we have those times when we felt or feel the same way. That we're maybe almost desperate for God to interrupt, for him to step in and somehow indicate that he's heard and he's active and he will answer. And yet it seems like we're greeted by silence from God. There might be some things today that you're waiting on. There may be some things that that you're expecting. I think, if I'm not mistaken, there may be a couple of ladies waiting on babies. How's that working out for you? 
one a little bit closer than the other, yes? Nine months. Now, it went by really quick for me. <laughs> but I hear there's another perspective to that, right? You're waiting, and, and, and you're excited, and you, you think, could it be? Uh, maybe there are others that are dealing with some news. Maybe it's a m- in, in the field of a medical issue, and there's a prognosis, or, or there's a test result, or, or there's something kind of hanging there. For others, it may be something financial, a business situation or deal it may be more more personal the sell of a property or or an asset or a house or a car and there's this this sense of i need something to happen and it feels like i'm just waiting and 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 nothing's moving nothing's changing and and maybe even i'm begging god god intervene answer here do something and it seems like nothing is really changing all that much we all have those things in our life, those, those times when we're waiting for God to act. And, and today I want us to remember, on the one hand, God has acted in history. God, in the person of Jesus, entered history and acted in miraculous ways. But that's not the end of the story, because the other side of that is God will act again one day and in the will act again one day what our hope is is that in that action god will set everything right that is wrong that's pretty remarkable when you think about it that god could act and set everything right is there stuff wrong in our world is there stuff wrong in your circle of life of course and often we look at this next passage. Usually it's a time when we, we open it because it's a, a, a memorial service or a funeral. We, we go to the end of the Bible. We go to Revelation chapter 21, the next to the last chapter of all the, the revelation of God, of all the, the, the sense of this is what God has done and will do. And in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, God has this word of promise and hope for us. He says these things. He tells us, or actually John is writing. He says, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I could hang out there a long time. I'll try not to. But when when I read that, the thing that jumps out at me, the word that jumps out at me is the word new. Do you like new stuff? I like new stuff. Like if I'm going, maybe, who's upgraded a phone recently? Certainly somebody here. Okay. Okay. When I go to upgrade my phone, you're probably like me. I want the newest model, yes? Anyone else? Don't give me the iPhone 5S. I want the 6S. The 6S Plus. Right? Or the iPad Pro. I think I saw one today, did I? Not the regular old iPad Air 2. Give me the iPad Pro. Right? Yes? No? Yeah, okay. That happens. Buying a car. Isn't it nice, that new car smell? Don't you like it? Maybe? If you like the new car smell, raise your hand. 
If you'd rather get a used car, raise your hand. Okay. Now, I know, according to Dave Ramsey, the best plan is to get this relatively three- or four-year-old used car, new used car, and da, da, da. I get that. But you sit in a new car and you get the smell. I tried the spray. It don't work. just doesn't. We, we like new things, and that's the word that jumped out at me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You know, we think about the culmination of all things, the second coming. I think we, we look at it as if what we have is just going to be finally cleaned up. You know, I mean, you take your used car, your old car, and you're going to take it to the car wash. And you're going to maybe have them wash the outside, get the, the, the wax out and the buffer and buff it out so it's real shiny. They go on the inside. Anything that's spilled on the seats or the carpet, they're going to clean up. You're going to get your car back. It's going to be all shiny and old, but clean. And I think sometimes we look at this picture of the end of all things and think that's what God's going to do. He's just going to buff the earth a little bit and kind of clean up the messes. No, that's not what that says. It says the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They're gone. No more. God starts with a brand new heaven and a brand new everything is new. And I think when you when just think about what that means, it means all these years that have gone on in the history of mankind and all the sin that has sort of tainted the earth God is just going to get rid of all that and he's going to restore creation, this new creation to what he originally intended and designed. And, and I think, and I like those who talk about that period of time, that, that hope that we have that what we get when we get there will make what we have now as beautiful and as amazing as the creation is seem like it's dull and tarnished when the newness of this new heaven and new earth comes. We are going to be blown away i think by what we one day will see in that time and that's the promise of god but he goes on i don't think that's even the best part when we think about this this isn't where we hang out but we have that idea and that's where it starts the next verse he tells us this i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband so in that is, is what we call heaven, you might say, or, or the city of God, the, the new Jerusalem, that picture. And then he goes on and tells us what I think we most look forward to is what's coming next. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then listen to what he says in the next verse. This is incredible. He says, and he, God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. And then here's the phrase. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For this old order of things has passed away. Whatever it is that's the we're waiting for, that, that's got us sort of bogged down, that weighs on our minds, that consumes our thoughts, that is the object of our worry, God says one day, all of that will be no more. Whatever it is, one day he will set right everything that is wrong. And one of the ways that we've seen to do it is just wipe it all away and bring out this new, unblemished, untarnished creation for we who know him as his people. That is our hope. When we think about 
Advent, I, I want us to think about that. Yes, the second coming is often presented as that thief in the night movie and other things like you better be ready or God's going to come in the twinkling of an eye and it's going to be scary because you're going to be left behind. We know that. But there's also this great hope that we have that God will act in this way and he will work on our behalf in ways we cannot even imagine. When he himself wipes the tears from our eyes. What a great hope that we have. Whatever it is we find ourselves in the middle of that is the end of the story for God's people now I know particularly at the holiday season when we find ourselves bogged down in things it sort of hurts a little more doesn't it because everybody seems to be so happy it's the most wonderful time of the year after all according to the song but I will guarantee you there are people in this room today people in your neighborhood, people in your office, people in your school, people that you know, maybe even people in your family that would say, this is not the most wonderful time of year. This is the hardest time of year. This is the time of year when I wish I could be happy, but it's hard to do that. One of our hardest Christmases growing up was when I was 12 years old. For some reason, my parents decided to have a third child. They didn't ask me if that was a good idea. They didn't come to me and say, listen, you know, we know you're about to be a teenager and, and, and you know, you got, but, but, you know, no, never. They just, they just went and did it. And so my brother and I were about two and a half years apart. Along comes this blessed girl child. Exactly. Now, now if you, how many oldest children do we have here? Didn't we have it the hardest because our parents didn't know what they were doing. They were practicing on us. They were, I'm telling you. And then the middle child comes along. Actually, the, this my brother, a couple of years later, doggone it, he got all the breaks. At least I thought he did. But this girl that came along 12 years later, I don't know who her parents were because I never met them. You may have heard there's this little movie coming out called Star Wars in a week or two. Well, it came, the first one came out in 1977. And being the science fiction nerd type geek that I am slash was, I really wanted to see it. It was important. But it was rated PG. Not PG-13. I don't even think PG-13 existed yet. It was rated PG. And my parents had a firm line that we did not see PG-rated movies. And I begged and pleaded. I prayed. <laughs> Nothing changed. Then this girl child comes along, and at like six years old, we had HBO. She's watching R-rated movies in the living room. <laughs> this is not cool. That wasn't reason it was the worst Christmas. It was actually the Christmas when she was born in October, so she had just turned one, and something happened that had her in Shan's Hospital in Gainesville, and nobody knew what it was. Her blood counts were dangerously low. They did all the tests, I think, that they knew to do at the time to try to figure out what might be going on, and they couldn't find any reason she was that ill, but she just was. And if you've ever gone into a hospital with, with 
an infant, you know, one-year-old, you know it's heartbreaking to walk into that room, particularly for an 11, 12-year-old big brother. I sort of liked her, I guess. To walk in and see in a crib this tiny person with it seemed like every monitor and tube and needle possible connected to her. Just not right. Not good. I mean, I was 12. I didn't understand what was going on. I knew my parents were pretty upset. I knew they weren't home a lot. They had to go and they were with her and all of that that you would expect parents to do. I know a lot of times when they were home, they were upset and their minds weren't with us. They were thinking about Renee. I remember on Thanksgiving, because she had just gone into the hospital, they actually popped in for lunch for about an hour and a half and ate with us at my grandmother's house before they went back to the hospital. And over that weekend, we got to see her for the first time. Days turned into weeks. And there were still no answers, and they still and nothing was changing, and wasn't getting better. And what do you do? And how does this happen? And why does this happen? And it doesn't make sense—not for a twelve-year-old, much less for a mom and a dad. It's a good ending. Some point in time, the story I heard, and this is from my twelve-year-old brain, so it may not be exactly accurate, but apparently. They, in one procedure, happened to put a needle of some sort in her abdomen and hit what turned out to be a cyst on her spleen that was leaching all the blood, apparently, in her body. I'm sure there's a much more technical explanation than that. But I do know that this one-year-old came home after they found that with an incision that seemed to go from her, you know, from her chin to her belly button because they had to go in, they were able to remove it, and from then on, she's been almost normal. <laughs> that stuff's not supposed to happen. That's not how you're supposed to be celebrating Christmas. Those aren't the, the memories that you want. But that was the reality. For, for some of us, those are the realities that we deal with, those hard realities. And so we look to this and we see that one day the promise of God, the advent that we can look forward to, isn't just the, the scare you into salvation thing, but is also the promise of God himself acting in this way on our behalf, that we might have everything that we know has gone wrong one day be set right. It's a great promise. It's a great hope that we have. But what do we do today? What does a 12-year-old boy do when his sister's in the hospital and his parents are distracted and everybody around him is sad and it's Christmas time for Pete's sake and people are supposed to be happy? What do you do if you find yourself in one of those situations and everything seems to be stacking up against you? And how do you cope? While this is true, what do we do in the meantime might be the question that we have to ask. And the psalmist gives us maybe a little bit of help in Psalm chapter 16 when he 
beginning in verse 5, would write these words. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Now, if we stop right there, that seems bad, doesn't it? Especially if we're talking about the, the difficulty that life brings to all of us at some time or another. But that's what the psalmist starts with. You have assigned me my portion and my cup. Seems like God is mean, but that's not his point. The second part of that helps us understand where he's going when he says, you have made my lot secure, that in spite of what's going on around me, God, you have ultimately assigned me my portion, not the circumstances that I find myself in, but rather you have given me through through your son Jesus a lot that is secure. He goes on in the next verse, verse 6, and says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. That's that one day he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. I like that part of the story. But what do we do in the meantime? Verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. And then verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You know, as you go through whatever it is that you're going through in the midst of whatever season you find yourself, these are the words that I would encourage you with. Yes, we know that God has promised some incredible things, but the question isn't that. It's what will we focus on in the meantime? And the psalmist tells us what to do, to set the Lord always before me. It's a question of focus. When things happen, when things go wrong, when difficulty comes, our natural inclination is to gravitate our focus toward it, toward the circumstance, because it is overwhelming, it is all-encompassing, it seems like there is little hope, there is not much I can do about it, and so our focus goes on that, and we begin to stew on it, to percolate, to worry. It comes up in our thinking. It comes up as we sleep. It's always on our mind. We can't get away from it. And the encouragement of the psalmist is rather than focus there to place our focus on the Lord. As it were, to put his face between us and the circumstance that seems overwhelming. There, there are often uh, little catchphrases that are out there about difficulty. Um, I wish I could remember one. I should have written one down. I think there's, there's one that you know is basically to the effect of, uh, don't tell. Don't tell God the size of your mountain. Tell the mountain the size of your God, or something like that. Does that sound at all familiar? Is that right? No, it is now. <laughs> Print and ship. No. And those are those are nice right we like those sayings but in the midst of facing that mountain can i be honest that's not very helpful i mean it might be true but it doesn't always feel helpful those platitudes or dare i say cliches that we quickly would throw out there while true don't always get us there. And I think our goal or our role as believers isn't to 
somehow diminish the size of the problem because the problem is real. The, the storm, the mountain, the difficulty, we can't ignore it. It's there. But the question is, will it be the all-consuming matter of our focus? Or will we instead, as the psalmist said, set the Lord always before me? You know, Jesus was the greatest example of this. The book of Hebrews tells us that since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? Hebrews chapter 12. What should we do? I guess it's up there. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Verse 2 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. When you think about Jesus going to the cross, I hope this phrase will come to your mind. Because this is, as the the writer of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. As the psalmist says, I will continually have the Lord before me. It's because Jesus demonstrated it for us when he was facing the cross, when he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, knowing what was coming, knowing the betrayal, knowing the agony, knowing the torture, knowing the death that awaited him. He did it, according to this verse, for the joy set before him, he could endure all that. That's got to be a lot of joy, yeah? cross is an ugly scene the trial that leads up to the cross even uglier probably many of us today have a different perspective on that because of the movie a few years ago the passion of the christ and how it so vividly depicted some of those hours leading up to the crucifixion and the crucifixion itself and to think in that process the writer of hebrews would say For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And verse 3 tells us this. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because stuff's going to happen. Life will come at you and it will be hard. And the temptation will be to grow weary And to lose heart. But will we instead, in focusing on those circumstances, allow the weariness and the hopelessness to overcome us? Or in lieu of that, will we fix our eyes on Jesus? Will our hearts be glad and our tongue rejoices because we keep the Lord always before us? And we are going to do that together today as a church family. We're going to consider him who endured such opposition by taking the elements of the Lord's Supper together. These are the the symbols that remind us of what Jesus went through so that we might have hope and life and salvation. We'll take a cracker, a piece of matzah, unleavened, to remind us of the sinlessness of our Savior. And if you were to look at the whole wafer, you would see that it's, in its baking process, looks like it's bruised, the different darker sections on it. It's striped. It's punctured in these stripped rows. Maybe as Isaiah would remind us, he was bruised 
for our transgressions. And it's by his stripes we are healed. And we'll take that to remember that some of those stripes were inflicted cruelly by the Roman soldiers. And then we'll take the cup. And in that cup is juice that reminds us, Scripture tells us of the blood of Jesus, his blood shed. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or forgiveness of sin. And so we together pass these and we eat and drink so that we can consider him and what he went through so that like him we can have the focus of our lives fixed not on the circumstances which change but on he who is unchanging on he who has promised one day to wipe every tear from our eyes I'm going to invite our deacons to come forward and prepare the table, and we're going to worship God together in these moments. And by taking of the bread and by drinking of the cup, I ask that you use those moments that we pass them out to pivot the focus of your life so that you can fix your eyes on him who died for you. Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Why do we keep the Lord continuously before us? Because I would suggest in one of the themes of Advent, Jesus brings hope. 400 years of silence and then the hope of Bethlehem. Hours of a mockery of a trial and the torture that went with it. In the agony of the cross only to become the resurrection. Jesus brings hope. And in fixing our eyes on him, we might say that's another word for worship. He is worthy, we would say. In fact, one of the choruses sung in heaven, the book of Revelation tells us, is worthy is the Lamb. And we fix our eyes on him because he is worthy. The, the circumstances that are there would draw our attention away and would somehow compete for the place that he alone holds. And to fix our eyes on him is the conscious decision to decide somehow to worship him in the midst of difficulty. And one of my favorite scriptures in all the New Testament about worship is in the book of John, when Jesus is talking about it with the Samaritan woman. And he talks about true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And then he says this, these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. The thought to me is amazing that God would look down at my life and somehow see in my worship of him, something he would move toward. He would seek out. And in the midst of my difficulty, no matter how overwhelming and hopeless it might seem, the conscious decision to focus on him and the hope that he offers, that act of worship might in fact be the very thing that moves God toward me in the situation. And does it mean the situation will change? Not always. 
and I'm sure you've heard it put differently. But maybe the real change needed isn't the situation, but in me. And as I align myself and the focus of my life with him, he then is free to do what only he can do. We're going to close our service with the song, Lord, I Need You, I believe is what it is, which seems appropriate. So I'm going to invite our musicians and and singers, if you want to make your way up and get ready. I'm going to invite you in these next moments, having taken the supper and considered him who endured such opposition, that the words of this song might be our way of pivoting our focus away from the circumstances that demand our attention to the God who invites us to know him and who entered history and endured what he did so that one day he could fulfill that promise that he himself would wipe every tear from our eyes.